Pentecost Sunday, last Sunday of Eastertide. Now, Pentecost is actually historically just as significant as Christmas and Easter Sunday. Might surprise some of you. I think some folks are at the beach today, personally. It's an important day. So today we're going to celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit in just the same way we'd celebrate Jesus being born in the Incarnation. Now, you might have noticed that uh, Christians tend to have some opinions about the Holy Spirit. Anybody notice that? Am I the only one? Only one, really. No hands? Thank you. You're here. You're awake. You're engaged. You've had some coffee. That's good. So I grew up in a church hearing mostly about Jesus and later on more about the Holy Spirit, most of, most of which proved thankfully true. Had some charismatic experiences in my late teens, but I didn't have any sort of like framework to interpret that or know how to understand that. So what I had was experience was in the Bible, but it still seemed confusing. Anybody else been there besides me? Some of that? I did notice that the Holy Spirit always seemed to provoke controversy, right? Controversy. So in some churches, the Holy Spirit was like this uh, mysterious, powerful, divine force, but not really a person, right? It's just this mysterious thing. In other contexts, the Holy Spirit was a person, but he's kind of a weirdo. Uh, it was bizarre, embarrassing. He was like, the way I think of it is he was kind of like that weird, unpredictable, distant aunt or uncle that, uh, who showed up at the family reunions, but unannounced, and made some people pretty nervous and fearful, uh, and, or some people actually adored him. So kind of a wild card. In other churches, uh, I found that like, we would talk about the Holy Spirit, we believed in the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit still felt more like a doctrine, like a concept, an idea. In other churches, the Holy Spirit was like a prominent, beloved member of the family who is now deceased, but about whom we tell many stories of. I could go on and on. I think you could probably add your stories to that too, your experience with the Holy Spirit. Lots of opinions, lots of experiences, charismatic or otherwise for God and the Holy Spirit. I think it's kind of a tricky thing to talk about actually, because some of us have positive experiences, some of them have negative experiences, and most of us have a mixed bag of both. Hope you can relate to that. Most people have quite a story to go along with it. Who is God the Holy Spirit to you and for God's people? So not a bad thing to begin ruminating on now and during this next week. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit to you and who is the Holy Spirit to God's people? Unsurprisingly, we're going to be in Acts 2. And this is significant because this is the first underscore corporate Siding of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, okay? Corporate being the big word. When the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost, it marks a new beginning. It is a new era, and it's one that we still have. We're still in that age. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> so given the ascension, where Jesus gave his last will and testament to his followers, this was last week, gave them the commissioning. The disciples are in Jerusalem, and they're waiting, just as Jesus asked them to do. He instructed them. It's been 10 days since the ascension. So they've been waiting for 10 days. Jesus said he would, they would receive what the Father promised and that they would receive power from on high. So, remember this from last week? Jesus gave them a mission, commissioned them, uh, told them to go hurry up and wait, which they did, and they had not a whole lot to go on. Uh, they don't know about the Holy Spirit yet. No indication that they understand this yet. <clears throat> but they are waiting faithfully in Jerusalem. Not sure what they're doing exactly. Don't know. Don't know how they're busying themselves, but we do know an awful lot about what is going on around them. 
And this is key. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place. Acts 2, 1. <clears throat> Sorry about this, guys. Got a catch in my throat. The day of Pentecost they're celebrating then is not what we're doing right here today. Totally different. This is the Jewish Pentecost, also known as the day of the first fruits. It was one of the big three Jewish feasts, the ones you do a pilgrimage for. Pentecost, which means 50, because it came 50 days after Passover. So like Passover, you'd make your pilgrimage. You'd load up your stuff, you'd go to Jerusalem, you'd celebrate it. Like Passover, uh, Jerusalem's packed to the gills. It's hopping. Uh, there's, it's full of Jews and God-fears from all throughout the region. So worshipers of all nationalities are there and they converge on the holy city. Things are hopping. So this is what's surrounding the disciples, all this activity as we come upon this passage. Now, it's going to be good for us to know something about what Pentecost is all about. Day of the first fruits, right? Basically, here's the deal. It was a harvest festival. First fruits. Have y'all heard that phrase from scripture? Anybody? First fruits. Okay. Um, here's how it worked. It's a harvest festival where farmers, pilgrims mostly, farmer pilgrims I call them, would come and they would bring God the first fruits of their harvest. That was their offering. So what they did is they had their, the harvest began and they would take the very first things that were ripe and bring them to Jerusalem. So there were grains, wheat, barley, fruits, grapes, dates, figs, that kind of stuff. That's where we get this, some of these tithing principles you hear about to give God your first fruits because it's basically for stewardship. Um, give God first dibs rather than what you have left over after you spend all your money and all your resources on stuff. So here's how it played out. Check this out. So these farmer pilgrims, what they do, they, they get their first fruits. They load up their oxen and their carts or what have you. Uh, they put their first fruits in these nice elaborate baskets and they decorate the oxen or the carts with these garlands of flowers. So it was kind of a thing. And they passed through the various towns. Okay. And as, as they did, it was like a procession. It was like a parade. There'd be cheering. There'd be music. There'd be fanfare. So they arrive in Jerusalem. They go to the temple, present their first fruits there's an offering and upon their arrival you can bet the smell of warm fresh bread was in the air uh, and they would offer in fact two loaves symbolically in the temple as they worshiped and here's what they did for the worship they would basically recite the exodus story okay they would remember how they were enslaved how god rescued them how he brought them to the promised land so their worship that liturgy was focused on gratitude and on celebrating the harvest which god provided key underscore that that's the celebratory environment that's surrounding them on this jewish pentecost that's what's going down and they're together in one place now there's no indication i highly highly doubt that they were kind of taking part in all the festivities i don't think so i doubt they were doing the temple worship and such wasn't exactly safe to be a follower of jesus at this point right his crucifixion still fresh in their memories they seem to be hold up okay and waiting in some very large house of some sort. And it's actually 120 people. You look back at Acts 115, you, you, you can get this data. Uh, men and women, it included the 12 disciples. It had people like Jesus' inner circle, but Mary and Mary Magdalene. So when I say disciples, don't hear me talking about the 12 right now. This is these 120 folks, okay? The inner circle of men some. They're gathered together in one place, hold up, waiting. And as they waited, they waited together until suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them, rested on them. Okay, lest we uh, doubt the divine origin of the Holy Spirit, Luke makes it pretty clear. It, the sound came from heaven. That's a hint. 
When we speak of wind in the scriptures, it's often an old sign of the divine presence. Wind is usually tied to a theophany, a God sighting. It's how God makes himself known, often in overwhelming and kind of scary ways, like a storm or like a whirlwind. We see that in 2 Samuel and Job and Ezekiel. So wind is one of the ways that God announces his arrival. It's like a precursor. So this powerful sound of rushing wind fills the entire house. No nook and cranny is uh, left without it. So it's kind of, hey, you can run, but you can't hide. Here comes God. The person of the Holy Spirit, not some impersonal force of nature, is arriving. So this is God, the breath of life from way back in Genesis. That didn't get their attention. Then we have divided tongues of fire appeared and rested on them. Not bizarre at all. <laughs> not weird. Not anything that won't get their attention. Fire is another old sign in Scripture. But it often signifies judgment. In recent history, we look back in Luke 3, John the Baptist talked about the Holy Spirit was going to be a purifying, cleansing fire. Judgment. Look in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings. God is a consuming fire. So fire is not comforting. Fire is cause for alarm. But the Lord is up to something different here. He's up to something different here. These aren't the flames of judgment. These are not the flames of destruction. This is the fire of glory and power in God's presence. This is the fire of Mount Sinai when Moses received the law. This is the fire of a burning bush that was aflame but wasn't consumed somehow. This is the pillar of fire that God used to lead uh, Israel in the wilderness. And this is the fire in heaven that Ezekiel saw when he received his call. This Pentecost fire is of glory and power in God's presence. This is not about judgment. To the contrary. So these old signs of wind and fire, right? Those are normally startling and terrifying. They're a reason to shake in your boots. They're a reason to fear. But not today. Today, again, it is about power and glory and the presence of God. The Lord is making his arrival undeniably known. I am here. And this is kind of a fun twist. Aided by the wind, notice how the fire spreads from person to person. Nothing spreads fire more efficiently than a good, strong wind. It's holy wildfire. And these tongues of fire appeared on each one of them, all 120. That must have been a crazy sight and sound. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but signs from the Lord are well and good, certainly. Uh, they get everyone's attention, right? But I'm more interested in what they signify. What do they mean? Like, Lord, what is this mark? What are you saying here? I think verse 4 tells us, They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The main point, they, corporate, were filled with the Holy Spirit. First time. So God took up residence in their hearts. All 120 of them, not just the disciples. To me, this is a miracle. God tabernacling in them. So up to this point, the Holy Spirit might come and he might like empower a certain person or uh, enable them to do a certain task. We see that in the Old Testament. Uh, we see that with someone later on like John the Baptist. The Spirit of the Lord was upon them, right? That's kind of the phrase. But God the Holy Spirit coming upon a people corporately, totally new, totally unprecedented. It's a new day. So you may have heard this before, but Pentecost is the day that we became a we, like we became a family. First Peter 1, 2. Once you were not a people, uh, now you are a people. So the Holy Spirit eternally binds us together in unity and fellowship. I like the mention of those divided tongues uh, that rest upon each person because that fire 
that Holy Spirit sign was, this showed, it was kind of a unifying sign of, hey, you belong in the family. You're in the family. You're part of the fellowship. The point, uh, we belong to each other and we belong to the Lord. And Pentecost made that happen. So on that day, that's when the body of Christ began. That's when we became the living stones of a new temple. That's when we became the people of God. That's when we become the household of God, brothers and sisters. That's when we became the church. That all begins when the Holy Spirit shows up. That all begins. So as Luke's gospel began with a birth, Jesus, Acts begins with another birth, the church. Pentecost, we often say, is the church's birthday. Fair to say, because our life together, it began on that day and it continues still. So everything Jesus said in the ascension proved true. Remain in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. So the Holy Spirit fills his people up, knits us together. Uh, why I don't think that's the main focus of this passage, which I'll get to in a sec, I think we have to, we got to notice it. We've got to notice what the Holy Spirit's doing here in the background. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? Made a body, made a household, made a family, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I may step on some toes here, we'll see. Might surprise many of you, this is not the gift of tongues. That's not what's going on here. It's not angelic and heavenly utterances that we see later in 1 Corinthians 14, which I think are totally legit. I say that because there's no need for interpretation here. What Paul describes there is a two-step process. Somebody gives a word, and then an interpreter comes and interprets that word. This is just straight away. So when the Holy Spirit fills them, everyone is able to speak in these foreign languages they didn't previously know. So Stott says there's no miracle in the hearing here, and I agree with him. I think he's right on. Let's take a step back, okay? So up to this point, this has been a private affair. Them in the house having this unbelievable, crazy, bizarre experience, right? It's 120 of them in some nondescript, undisclosed, large house somewhere in Jerusalem. That's, that's fine. But given all the commotion, uh, the neighbors get a little curious, right? Things go public very quickly. Uh, it sounds like a lot of people who were in earshot take notice. And verse 5 reminds us that there are people of every nation under heaven. They're around. So you've got residents of Jerusalem. You got diaspora Jews, you got Jewish converts, you got God fears. There's this mixed international Pentecost crowd, and they come to see what on earth is going on. And this is what they find. They hear one message, one message in many languages. All those languages, it must have been such a racket, right? They're amazed, here's the words, amazed, astonished, bewildered. I can't underscore how vivid those terms are and how alive they are. And they kind of give one of these. This is kind of funny. Aren't these people Galileans? To us, that means not a lot. Uh, that was probably a pretty pejorative question. Uh, that was not a compliment. They didn't have the greatest reputation. It's kind of like saying, hey, how are these uneducated, backwater, Galilean country bumpkins, how are they pulling this off? Like, how did they learn these languages? They can't explain it. They can't figure out how it's possible. Uh, Aramaic and Greek, those would have been the two main languages spoken then, but all this other stuff that's going on, they have no idea. This is way above their pay grade. They do not understand it. Now listen to the laundry list of people in verses 9 to 11. Listen to all the people who are here to hear this message. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, you gotta take a breath here, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Okay. <sighs> wow. Why would Luke go to the trouble listing all that stuff? What's the point? 
this mixture of people groups and geography. Why would he do that? Well, there's a lot of theories about it, but bottom line, nobody really knows why, other than to show how uh, far and wide and expansive the mission of God is. It's that, great, it's that great commission thing, going out to all the corners of the earth. So God has assembled and orchestrated quite the audience here. He's created a holy spectacle to draw them. It's a big hint where things are headed next. And this is the beginning of the Great Commission. I think, maybe, Luke might be kind of thumbing his nose at Rome here a little bit too. You know, the mighty Roman Empire, the vast Roman Empire. It's kind of like Luke saying, well, I know of a far larger and more expansive and mightier kingdom than that. It's called the kingdom of God. So, has no boundaries. So, Rome, you're small potatoes. The main point that I don't want us to lose, what were the disciples saying? What were they saying? What did these men and women who were drawn to this cacophony from all the different nations, what did they hear when they investigated the commotion? They heard everyone talking about, verse 11, the mighty works of God. The Holy Spirit enabled all 120 to speak in foreign tongues in order that others could hear about Jesus. <laughs> what God had done through Jesus, praises of God, great stories of God. These Christians are witnessing, they're bearing witness, they're testifying. This is just evangelism, man. It's so good. This is proclamation, this is preaching. So God indwelled all these Christians and empowered them to outwardly bear witness. So the Great Commission is beginning and Jerusalem is the seedbed. That's where it starts. This is a different kind of harvest. To go back to what Pentecost means, this is a harvest of souls that begins in the Holy City. Unsurprisingly, reiterating it, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And you always have these folks. The others were mocking, saying, ah, they're filled with new wine. Last couple of verses in our passage. Again, amazed and perplexed, perplexed. Very vivid and powerful words that I can't quite capture. And it just simply means they're at a loss. They're, they're, they just, they're at a loss. They can't deny something, but they can't explain it either. Some try, right? They say, ah, they're just, they're drunk. So showing us what Jesus often encountered. You know, God can show up, but don't expect everyone to see it for what it is and embrace it as good news. Jesus faced that over and over. To keep reading on, 14 onward, we're not going to go there. Peter takes the baton and he sprints. Awesome testimony. And that's how the first Christian Pentecost went down. God transformed a Jewish harvest festival into a worldwide harvest of souls for all people and all nations, made possible and sponsored by who? God the Holy Spirit. Helper, advocate, comforter, who Jesus promised. Now you gotta think, at this point, don't you think some things clicked for the disciples, made sense after Pentecost? Oh, okay, that's this promise Jesus was talking about. Oh, this is the Holy Spirit, all right. And they have some experience of it. And they step into this new era of the Great Commission boldly, but not without questions, and certainly not without difficulty, but they have power and joy. We see that all throughout Acts. This is all new to them. I love that our women are studying Acts for their uh, Wednesday morning Bible study because they get to see the way this story plays out after this. Maybe a good time for us all to be reading through Acts the next week? Just a suggestion. See what the Lord was and is up to. Let's take one step back here. The Holy Spirit, I think, does many things in our midst. And as much as I hate to narrow it down to three things, I'm going to. Three different things. I think the Holy Spirit does three things in our midst. Fellowship, transformation, and power. The main point of today 
is power. The fellowship will come out later. We'll see that played out, the transformation, the sanctification. That's going to be fleshed out later. This moment in Acts 2 is about empowerment. Empowered to do what? Well, worth noting, since again, the first time the Holy Spirit fills us corporately, the New Testament. So again, you know what they do. Here's what happens, what they're empowered to do, to bear witness, to talk about God's mighty acts. They tell the story of Jesus. First thing that happens when God pours himself into us is evangelism and mission. It's outward. We speak of God's goodness towards us. We share that with other people. The disciples can't contain themselves. God's joy becomes their story. God's joy becomes their song. Mission doesn't begin until the Holy Spirit shows up. And boy, howdy, does it happen. So being filled with the Holy Spirit means you have what you need for every good work God calls you to. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means you have what you need for every good work God calls you to. For mission. So I believe, strongly, the Holy Spirit precedes us in our East Charlotte work. That was his idea, and he's already gone before us. So I think equipping awaits us, empowerment awaits us in this soon-to-come mission. So God, the Holy Spirit, will fill us equal to the task. We can trust that. Here's why I say that. Here's my encouragement. And we'll wrap up here in the next few minutes. The same power, the Spirit, that shaked, rattled, and rolled, uh, the house of Pentecost, that violent rushing wind, all that business, that's inside of you and I. It's in us. The holy fire from Sinai, that is in us too. Well, just how powerful is the Holy Spirit? I'll give you two verses from the New Testament. Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. Okay? Building on that, adding to that, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? So folks, we, we have a spiritual nuclear reactor in our midst. It's called the Holy Spirit. Every day, every moment, every second, every beat of the human heart, the power of God is in us. The question is, do we really believe that? We're just going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, the whole power of the Holy Spirit, yeah, yeah. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in at work in and through us, right? So I think the question is, do we believe that and do we rely on this advocate and this helper? We do that. Do we know the Holy Spirit as a person or is the Holy Spirit kind of like our Christian version of the force, you know? Do we know, do we believe and follow this Holy Spirit for real? That's the question for me. I think God is waiting to animate us. I think God is waiting to empower us. He puts his spirit in us, in the deepest place he possibly can, in the human heart. Folks, that's the cradle of our identity. That is the most precious and most known place to God. That's where he comes to live within us. So we become, we're the new temple. where He's gathered people bound together by the Holy Spirit, empowered for mission. Now the ladies know this. But if we read further in Acts, you encounter even more. We see the powerful witness of a Christian community. We see the body of Jesus on display for the world to see. So we too, us, our little fledgling body, are the living and breathing sacrament of Jesus. We're his hands and feet in the world. His flesh, bone, and body, and blood icons. 
and we are going to be and are empowered to carry out this great commission for the life of the world.